What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's a, it just almost evokes like you to respond. I didn't tell you, hey, sing along. And if you know the song, you're, you're here. And if you, if you don't know the song, if you're new to church, that imagery probably sounds really weird. The blood of Jesus. We proclaim this in the songs that we sang during our time through worship. We sing about the, the saving power of the blood, the transforming power of the blood. And that's a very strange metaphor for us in sort of modern Western culture. Right? That feeling of, why, why does it have to be blood? Couldn't God just say, you're, you're forgiven. I forgive you. I'm God, so I can do that kind of thing. And the concept of sacrifice, as we begin a new teaching series on the cross, is stretches our imagery and our Western cultural mindset to its limits. But as we start to talk about the cross, I both want to invite you in the, in the posture of worship, because, you know, I've had this experience in preparing for this series, you sort of come to the end of words. And so there's so much that Jesus accomplished, we will spend eternity and never reach the bottom of what Jesus has done for us in giving himself on the cross. But we try to, to unpack what are these different threads that are coming together in what Jesus did on that day on a hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. And this teaching series, will, we'll be looking at these different motifs. And I think motifs is the proper word, and we'll see why that is in a few moments. But a, a theory of what Jesus just doesn't quite accomplish what the biblical writers are trying to convey. But we'll be looking at these different motifs. And the first one we're going to look at today is this concept of sacrifice. Now, at one level, the concept of sacrifice is immediately recognizable to us. Right? Like you may have, be able to articulate how much you sacrifice to get the job that you have or to reach the level of success that you've reached in your career. Or if you're a parent, how much you sacrifice for your children or perhaps for your spouse. Uh, you can talk about the sacrifices that you have made and we could hear stories about those. If you're a Princeton student, perhaps it's not lost on you that Princeton is the most prestigious university in the world. And you probably sacrificed a lot to get here. So well done. But for all of us, we could speak of the sacrifices that we've made. Sacrifice is a part of life. And so in one way, it's immediately recognizable. But in another way, when we, when we move out of the realm of metaphor into the literal, 
and talk about what is going on with the sacrifice. If somebody were to tell you, you're talking to them after the service, yeah, after lunch, I'm going to go select a goat from a local farm and we're going to select one and we're going to kill it and its blood is going to make purification for uh, these sins and all this kind of stuff. You'd be like, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I'll be right over here calling the police. Thank you for being here. The imagery of the, the sacrifices used in the Bible is often quite perplexing to us and quite foreign. And yet, I think even though we would so easily discard that imagery and, and use terms that are much more palatable to our, again, our sort of Western cultural mindset, I think we have to, to grapple with the ramifications of why the scriptures use this language of sacrifice, why they don't discount it, and what we are to do with it. Now, when I ask people as a pastor, what is the first thing they think of when they think of the cross? Oftentimes, the answer that is given is sacrifice. I think Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And today, what I want to do is just unpack a little bit about what that means and why that language is important. There's a pastor who used to be a pastor, is now kind of a guru. His name's Rob Bell. And he gave a really compelling talk about like, we should dispense with this imagery of sacrifice and, and sort of the blood elements of this because it's no longer a part of the way that we talk in sort of modern Western culture. And I'm listening to this and I, I find him really compelling in a lot of different ways. He's got some, you know, some teachings that probably stretch the bounds of, of Orthodox Christianity. So take that for what it's worth. But I, I'm listening to him. I'm like, yeah, that's a really compelling way of articulating it, but I'm not so sure the point that you're making is the right one. And today what I want to do is, is come at this language of sacrifice, hopefully from a way that makes it make more sense, but also hopefully in a way that tracks with the way the biblical writers are telling the story. All of this that Jesus accomplished is not accomplished in theory. It's not accomplished as an idea. It is a story that is borne out, the story of our salvation. And so what I want to do today is to look at, at that story as it's unfolded. Now, we're beginning a new teaching series. This series will cover the, the season of Lent, which began on Ash Wednesday. How many of you were here on Ash Wednesday for our gathering right in this room? Yeah, what a beautiful, beautiful gathering. We started off the season. Uh, thank you, Alfredo and Meredith. Um, like if you missed, like Meredith led us in this like artistic um, painting um, sort of practice, and it was really beautiful. So if, I, I don't know if I could articulate it. But one of the amazing things about that gathering was we, we sort of said goodbye. Like said, okay, thanks, it's over. And nobody moved. Um, and just the, the, the kindness of God's presence, like sort of that, that, that manifest element of him being here was, was very evident on that night. So we begin this season of Lent, walking towards the cross, walking towards resurrection. And so as we begin this series, I want to make a couple of just, just wider ranging notes that I think are important. First of all, uh, a couple of notes about the series. The work of Jesus on the cross always describes the harmonious work of Father, Spirit, Son. It is not Jesus sacrificing himself to the Father. It is not Jesus sacrificing himself in spite of the Father. It's not Jesus changing God's mind about us. It's always undertaken by the whole Trinity, the concert of the triune God that eternally has given itself in self-giving love to one another. And we get to glimpse, as Jesus talks about, the love that I have, that I share between my Father, I now share with you. And so this, the cross, is a revelation of that work. The work of Jesus on the cross is in harmony with the life that Jesus lived 
It's not that Jesus was a nice teacher and a great example, then he met a tragic end. Jesus' life, his resurrection, his ascension, they're all in concert with his crucifixion. It's all a part of one movement. The resurrection is not a reversal of the cross as if Jesus is just like, God is like, okay, you know, just kidding, we'll fix it, or I can make everything right. The, The resurrection is a vindication of the cross. The work of Jesus on the cross is not God's plan B. It wasn't God throwing cosmic darts at the dartboard and saying, oh, I don't know. I tried the law. It didn't work. Now I got to try. Oh, Jesus, get in there. The lamb slain before the foundations of the world, in the language of the new King James. This was always God's heart, always his plan was to come and be with us and to do whatever it takes. The cross is not a novel move in the heart of God. It is the revelation of the very heart of God. The work of Jesus on the cross does not fit into one theory or theme. Perhaps you've been in a Christian community that says, this is the gospel, and what the gospel does is narrow down into a very, very finite definition, and anything outside of that is seen as suspect. The gospel is God's wisdom. Andrew referenced that passage from 1 Corinthians. The cross is the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We will spend eternity mining the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus has accomplished. It does not fit into our one sentence definition. To go back to Rob Bell, to use him in a positive light, he says this about the cross. So back to the question of what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross? Is the cross about the end of the sacrificial system or a broken relationship that's reconciled or a guilty defendant who's been set free or a battle that's been won or the redeeming of something that was lost? Which is it? Which perspective is the right one? Which metaphor is true? The answer, of course, is yes. Or as James Cone says about the cross, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. So today we're going to look at three Old Testament motifs, echoes, that sort of carry through to to what Jesus is doing on the cross. The first one, the fundamental story of the people of Israel is known as the Exodus. It conveniently is found in the book of your Bible that is also called Exodus. In that story, the people of God are enslaved as the means of production to the tyranny of Pharaoh. You see, these people have been given a promise through their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, which we sang about today. A promise that through them and their lineage, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. But as we start in the beginning of Exodus, what we find is that the people are not in a position to bless other people. They're slaves. They're being oppressed. They're being used as a means of production by Pharaoh. And so they cry out to God. God hears their cry because God is the God who hears the cries of the oppressed. And he raises up a liberator and a redeemer named Moses. And Moses will confront Pharaoh with the truth of the living God. Now, if you've ever read the book of Exodus, there's some interesting things going on here. At the beginning of this contest between Moses and Egypt, the Egyptian magicians, the, the court of Pharaoh, seems to be able to replicate some of the miracles that Moses is doing. Moses will put his staff down, it will become a snake. And then the magicians of Pharaoh's court do the same. 
What's going on here? And throughout that narrative, it's repeated that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Now, we're looking at this, we're reading this, especially people who really value free will and choice. And we're reading this and we're like, well, that seems wrong. Why is God manipulating what happens? Why is God treating Pharaoh in this way? He's almost making it to where he can't respond. But we have to understand, in the ancient cultural imagination, Pharaoh is proclaiming that he is a representative of the gods of Egypt. He's basically saying to all the people that he is divine. And you know, if you're a ruler, if you're a tyrant, it's a really strong move to tell everybody that you're actually God in some way in flesh, because then you have to listen to him. Now, religious communities do this too, right? Thus saith the Lord. It's like, you, you can raise your hand at that. Be like, are we sure? Where is it written? So Pharaoh in the ancient cultural imagination is saying that I am divine. I am God. And so in that same ancient cultural imagination, the Egyptian people have subjugated the people of Israel. Pharaoh is a representative of the gods of Egypt. And they had this dual kind of imaginary. For them, there was the geopolitical things that were happening that you could see, you know, Pharaoh and his people have subjugated Israel. But there was also, that was a mirror of what was going on in the heavens. And so what would it suggest that Pharaoh and the Egyptians were able to subjugate the people of Israel? It would suggest that the gods of Egypt, with Pharaoh as their representative, were stronger than the God of Israel. And so when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it is communicating that God is the creator God, the only true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and that the gods of Egypt are mere mirages. They are playthings in the hands of God. And so we see this contest as it accelerates. There's these plagues that happen, and it all culminates in the event known as the Passover. We turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment, notice who the judgment is upon, on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on the sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door until, you're, until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down. Now, these lambs that are slaughtered are not said to have any kind of atoning significance. And that word atonement is an important one throughout this series. The word atonement is from an old English word. It basically means at-one-ment. It's often used to describe the way that God makes peace between God and us. And so these lambs are not sacrificed in order to pay for sins. They're just used as a part of the process. We don't really know what's going on. There's a lot of blood and hyssop and put on door frames. The blood simply identifies one as part of the people of God, of the one true God. This is the blood that makes for liberation from slavery as God conquers the forces of evil that hold the people of God in bondage. But this event is foundational, not final. This 
example will track directly in the lane for some of you. And for others of you, you'll be like, what is happening right now? So they used to have this thing called cable TV. And uh, for those of you who are maybe younger, maybe you've cut the cord, cable was, um, was basically a bunch of, like if you picture individual subscription services, it was a bunch of them, except they bundled them for you. So cable TV was something you paid for and then you could watch it. Now we have all these different subscription models that they are in the process of bundling together, except they're just gonna charge you twice as much for. But on cable, they would have, each Easter, they would have this movie called The Ten Commandments. And this, this happened when I was young. I'm 38. Uh, this would happen when I was younger. And for some of you, you're like, I've seen that movie a million times. Yes, thank you. Thank you for being here. We are honored to have you. And in that movie, Charlton Heston, who's like an old, like, tough guy who would play Moses, he's ripped. Like, I love how they always portray these biblical figures as just being jacked and tan. Uh, so that's, that's, that's exactly, it's just glowing, right? Which, you know, again, culturally would be right, because none of them were white people. Now, Charles ha- Charlton Heston is a white person, but we have that going on. But in the movie, it was this really interesting thing because I'm watching the movie and like, it's been like a day of golf and like sports, like oftentimes the NCAA tournament was on and there's this movie about the Exodus happening. And I, I, I definitely, even before I was a Christian, remember like sort of sitting there watching this movie and it always made sense to me. Like the movie was about the slaves being liberated from Egypt and there's this incredible climactic scene where the slaves walk through the, the water on dry land. And it's like amazing special effects from like the, the 40s or whatever. Amazing. And you're like, that's a movie. That's it. But the movie didn't stop there. The movie would keep going. You're like, whoa, you're like, you, you, the climax is over. Like in scene, like lights, let's, let's go. But the movie kept going. And that's actually a very accurate retelling of the story that the Bible is telling. Because what what we find out is that the story of the Passover is foundational, but it's not final. And as you read the Old Testament, what you find is that the people of God in their experience of Egypt learn that Egypt is not just out there. Egypt happens to be right here. And throughout the story, as the Old Testament unfolds, what God is trying to convey to the people is it's not just about your enemies. It's not just about what they do. It's about your participation in the ways of death and brokenness. This is illustrated most drastically by the exile. As the Babylonians march upon Jerusalem in 587 BC, because the people of God have not heeded the consistent warnings from the prophets, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you read the book of Jeremiah, this is what this is about. This is why Jeremiah is just beating his head against the wall. He's just like trying to say, like, you have to turn from the way you are currently going. Otherwise, you are going to find disaster. And you know what they find when they don't listen to him? Abject disaster. This exile lasts for 70 years until the people, and actually the Babylonians, they had this really warped practice. They would conquer people, they would destroy their land, and then they would cart off a bunch of their citizens. This is what the book of Daniel is about. Daniel is a Jewish captive living in Babylon and eventually in Persia. And so these people are carted off from their homeland. It's about 70 years before they are allowed to return. But even as they're physically in the land again, which we read about in places like Nehemiah and Ezra, even as they're in this place again, they find that there's still this yearning, nagging feeling that a a new exile, a new exodus needs to occur. 
that even though they're physically back in the land, it doesn't seem like they've really come back home, that there's something else that God is trying to do, some other promise that remains yet unfulfilled. As the, the, as the centuries unfold, the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonian siege is rebuilt in the first century, just before Jesus is born, under the supervision of Herod. There's still this overriding sentiment that God's promises remain yet to be fulfilled. That there's still a forgiveness of sins that needs to transpire, a real return from exile where the people are no longer oppressed by their Gentile overlords. In this case, in the case of Jesus of Nazareth, it is the Romans where the presence of God returns to the temple. It so viscerally leaves in Ezekiel chapter 10, but that God comes back. Where a king like David who oversaw the height of the, of the nation of Israel, a king like that is on the throne again. And they have this sense that the, the exodus has happened and yet still awaits a true and final fulfillment. So that's our first motif, our foundational one, the, the Passover, the exodus. Second one, if you're familiar, maybe in the fall, you've seen some of our Jewish sisters and brothers celebrate the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That is taken straight from Leviticus 16. I'm going to read to you a little bit about that, about that uh, liturgy, about that process. Leviticus 16, beginning of verse 8. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. In the care of someone appointed for the task, this was usually traditionally a Gentile, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. The high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, the central part of the tent of meeting. They had erected a tabernacle that would travel with them at this point. And he would go into this most holy place, this place that somehow, by God's grace, was a place where heaven and earth would intersect. And he would go in there once a year and he would kill a goat and sprinkle blood on the altar to make purification for all these places where, again, where heaven and earth would meet. The other goat, there were two goats, would not be killed. But the high priest would take both of his hands, confess all the sins of the people, and in some mysterious way would transmit their sins to this goat. And then they would send this goat full of sin off into the wilderness. This is known as the scapegoat, which we the term we use pretty commonly, right? Literally, the Hebrew Azazel means something like goat away, away. So the second motif that we see Jesus sort of weaving and the gospel writers weaving and Paul weaving into their like reflection, what did Jesus do on the cross is this idea of the scapegoat. The third is just the general sacrificial system in Leviticus. Have any of you ever undertaken the very honorable, noble task of reading the whole Bible? It starts out very strong, right? Some good storytelling, right? But we have all got lost in the wilderness of Numbers and Leviticus. And let me just say, like, if you've tried and failed, like, just skip it. 
It's okay. Because numbers, you're like, I mean, it's, it's like a absolute like trauma episode with like math class. And then you're like, does this add up? And then Leviticus, you're like, why? Like, it's so pedantic. Like there's a sacrifice for everything and stuff. Things are just dying everywhere. Like, what do we do with this? Let me just speak a word of peace over you. But if you've read it, you kind of get the deal. There is this overriding sacrificial system in Leviticus that's prescribing different responses that often mostly involve blood to these different actions, these different sins. Now, Savannah hinted at some of this this past week, and we're really grateful. It's great to have such credible teachers. I was able to be away with my family, and that was really awesome. So get the podcast on that one. But there are offerings that remove guilt, offerings that make for peace, offerings of thanksgiving. It all seems very primitive and cumbersome, and we read it, especially, like, I don't know about you, I've never seen anything that I've eaten killed. Like, some of you grew up on farms, you are in touch with the circle of life, right? That's not my story. (laughs) There's this great episode of the show Parks and Rec, where a man is hosting a barbecue, and he invites a bunch of people to this barbecue, And all of a sudden, they show up and they're asking him, where's the food? And he introduces a pig. And he tells everybody that the pig is named Tom. And he says, meet your meat. Now again, that is not a part of the circle of life that I have been privy to. Some of you grew up on farms, but we oftentimes are removed from the reality of life. Now, why? Why is there this elaborate sacrificial system with all of these meticulous instructions? Leviticus 17, verse 11, offered in summary, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you for making atonement, again, that word, for your lives on the altar, for as life is in the blood, that makes for atonement. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I, I don't know why this is, friends, but in some way, either God is trying to convey to us the reality of sin, or trying to give us a very visceral picture, but in some way, there is a cost associated with our sinfulness. Again, I can't explain that. I can't tell you, okay, this is why this happens. I don't understand that. But what I can say is that the, the consistent witness of the biblical narrative is that there is a cost associated with sin. Now, for many of us, we characterize sin, right? Like perhaps you grew up in a religious culture that just kind of implicitly stated that everything was sinful. And so, and perhaps you've kind of walked away from that and you've grown out of that and you're like, oh, I don't want anything to do with even that talk of sin. Like, because when people start talking about sin, they start looking at everybody else's lives, judging them in such a harsh way. Perhaps that's your experience. And let me just say, it's, I'm sorry, but there's something better than that going on. Perhaps our, your response is to trivialize sin. You know, I think for many of us, the, the overarching narrative of our culture is that we're not that bad. Like we're, we're certainly not as bad as those people right? And so God, he just wants us to be a good person. Like, just, just be a good person, right? And neither of these is the Bible's view of sin. Both the Greek and Hebrew words used uh, most frequently for sin in the Bible have the connotation of missing the mark. Now, this is so, so important because if, you, if you're familiar with the biblical story at all, does the Bible start with sin and brokenness? No, it doesn't. 
And so many tellings of the gospel try to convince people how terrible they are and then say, oh, but, but good news, God loves you. The Bible does not start with the sinfulness and brokenness of the world. The Bible starts with the goodness of God's world that he made. He keeps saying, let there be light. And then he's sort of just radiating and rejoicing. And he says, and it was so, and it was good. There is an inherent goodness. There is a original blessedness to the world that God has made. An original blessedness that Jesus will go to the cross to restore. And so friends, the Bible does not start with our brokenness, but it does include our brokenness. Karl Barth makes the point that the moment that we see sin, it's like we've ridden across this very dangerous and treacherous land and we're looking back and we're seeing our participation in the ways of brokenness. He's saying the moment that we see our sins for what they are, we are held in the grace of God. That at the same time that God reveals our participation in the ways of death to us, he is at one and the same breath offering us an invitation to return home to come home to his love. And so see this, God reveals our sins at one and the same breath. He invites us to the place where our sins are accounted for. But the Bible is not sentimental about sin. Fleming Rutledge articulates two layers of sin that I think are helpful. First, sin is a responsible guilt. And I think this is the way we kind of understand it, right? Like we, we have that experience of guilt or, you know, often belatedly we come to some experience of, oh, I've done something wrong. And we experience that guilt. We, we can experience that corporately too. But she also talks about a second layer. And this is a much more fundamental layer when it comes to the writers of the New Testament. Sin is not just the guilt that we feel. It's also an alien power. Remember, we were made in the image of God. And what that means is you were, you were vested with a lot of authority in this world. And when you use that authority to worship something that is not God, to go in ways that are contrary to God's way, you vest other things that are not God, that do not have your best interest at heart with that authority. And eventually those things sort of accumulate and acquire a, a, an ability to enslave us and overpower us. From the perspective of the New Testament, sin is not just this isolated individual act that we do. It is a power that holds us. Like Pharaoh was a cruel taskmaster over the Hebrew people in Exodus, sin has a hold of us in its grips. This is Paul's description in Romans 6. He describes being slaves to sin. It's not just that you can get your life right, that you can you know, make these subtle changes that through your discipline and through your ability to, to show up every day and slightly make yourself better, that somehow you're going to make yourself presentable to God. You are held by a power that is bigger than you. But you, at one and the same time that you are held by this power that you cannot overcome, are held by a love that has already overcome those forces, that have stared them down on the cross, that has given himself as a sacrifice with his blood in order to nail, as Colossians 2 says, those powers to the cross. And our culture is, is built upon having high regard for ourselves, high self-esteem. And the Bible's not sentimental about sin. It's not saying, oh, you're really not that bad off, are you? No, as Karl Barth says, the Bible tells us that we are both far worse than we realize. And yet, at the same time, we are far more loved than we could ever imagine. Flannery O'Connor has this way of capturing this, these different themes. And one of the things she says about our sort of modern Western culture of positive distortion, she calls it sentimentality. She says, sentimentality is a distortion in the direction of overemphasis on innocence 
Sentimentality is a skipping of the process of fall and redemption. It's concrete reality in an earthly arrival at a mock state of innocence. Sentimentality is the Jesus life without Lent, without Good Friday. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul is saying, This saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. These sins, and you can put up that chart, Andrew. All right, so this is kind of the way that we perceive of sin. And just if this is helpful to you, great. If you're a visual learner, this might be helpful. I made this chart, so it actually might not be helpful to (laughs) you. I did have some questions about the X, Y axis. So if it's a problem, you let me know. Um, But we have have this um, juxtaposition between individual and corporate sins. And the biblical vision is that, yes, we participate in sin both individually which is over here, and corporately. And those two things are held together. Now, in our culture, we have these different extremes. There's the humanist optimist, that that person that just says, oh, I'm not that bad off, am I? I would call that naivete, right? It's It's a refusal to actually deal with the facts on the ground of the world, that the world is broken, and that we have participated in that brokenness. Now, there's the progressive externalist, It's the person that sees all of sin as being outside of us. The sin is done in in structures and systems. It's done by other people. It's our enemies. And yes, I use political terms here because it's it's so interesting how how often our theological convictions become our political convictions. And so progressive externalists tends to see sin as out there. The libertarian individualist overly individualizes sin. And makes it just, it's always a matter of personal choice. There's no external realities that tend to affect and impact us. And again, these are not the biblical vision. The biblical vision has a high regard for both of these. And so when we talk about sin, we're talking about the interplay between these different forces. James Cone, in the first chapter of his monumental, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, describes the horrors of the Jim Crow South. How lynchings were a spectacle, like turning up to a local high school football game. How the bodies of black men and women were mutilated for show. To read Cone's descriptions, one is instantly struck with the question, why did these people, for most of whom were attending church twice on Sunday and during the week, why did they not see the absolute evil to which they were party? Because sin is a force. It is an alien power. It is not just something that we do. We're responsible for what we do, but it's also a corporate environment that holds us. C.S. Lewis says that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. But friends, hear me on this. God does not show you your sins so he can beat you over the head with them. At the same moment where there is revelation of your sinfulness, there is an invitation to come home. The same breath. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Those are always held together. God is not trying to push you away and say, go fix yourself. Go sacrifice something for me and then come draw near. He's saying, just come home. Just come home. Fleming Rutledge articulates this beautifully. Sin is the universal human condition, but this is not fully obvious unless one is God-directed, God-saturated, God-intoxicated. The New Testament writers will pick up on these themes. Passover, the scapegoat, 
the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system in Leviticus as they're trying to articulate, what did Jesus do? Hebrews chapter nine. But when Christ, Hebrews is in the New Testament, just in case you didn't know. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Again, remember how the tabernacle figured into the day of atonement. Now Jesus is going into a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. Jesus gives his life on the cross and then goes into this sort of cosmic sphere. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, not by the the blood of the scapegoat, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so so that they're outwardly clean. He's saying this is what the law was doing. It was making them clean. It was doing what God told them it would do. But there's something else going on with Jesus. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, sacrifice of Jesus is revealing to us who God has always been. God is eternal, self-giving love. God offers a gift that breaks the bounds of sacrifice itself. You see, Jesus' sacrifice was not just bringing things into alignment. It was breaking the very paradigm of sacrifice. His gift was so great that as Anselm says, it exceeds every debt. Jesus gives of himself and he has not stopped giving of himself. He gives of himself anew in the resurrection. He gives of himself anew in the giving of his Holy Spirit and his ascension. Jesus will never fail to give himself completely to us. This is the message of sacrifice that we find in the scriptures. First Peter 1 says, you know you are ransomed from the feudal conduct inherited from your ancestors, not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a, look at this word, a lamb without defect or blemish. Revelation 5, John is seeing into the way that things are. He's not seeing a vision of the future. He's seeing things as they are. And he gets this peek behind the curtain into the throne room of heaven. And it says that John began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This scroll is a metaphor for all that will save humanity. But then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Remember what John was told? He said, there's a lion. There's somebody that can open the scroll. There's somebody strong. There's somebody victorious. And then it says, then John looks. He's looking for that voice of strength. He's looking for that power. And what he sees at the center of the universe is a slaughtered lamb having seven horns, which symbolizes abject power, seven eyes, which symbolizes omnipresence, omnipotence, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you see that? Your prayers are held in the throne room of heaven right now. 
It's being poured out before the lamb who sits at the center of the universe. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals for you were slaughtered and by your blood, you were ransomed for God. Again, we're at the end of the Bible here and yet we're still using that language of slaughter, of blood, of ransom. Saints from every tongue and tribe and nation and people, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God and they will reign on earth. This is still good, so I'm gonna keep going. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's almost as if they don't have words to contain it. John, in his gospel, will pick up on this theme of the Lamb. As the first words that John the Baptist says about Jesus, as Jesus approaches him one day, he says to those who will listen, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, on the last week of his life, celebrates a Passover meal. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. It's the meal that we celebrate each week as we were instructed to do this in remembrance of him. And all the gospel writers have this crucifixion of Jesus taking place during the Passover. You see, in this time, people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They would come within the confines of the city to celebrate this and remember this exodus, this time where God had established this nation by freeing all these slaves. And these people who were under the oppression and the thumb of the Romans would be saying, Lord, do it again. Like, do the new exodus. Bring us to the place that you have promised you would bring, bring us to. And every gospel writer has Jesus crucified during this Passover week. But John's gospel narrates the story slightly differently. He slightly adjusts the timeline. John has Jesus being crucified at the moment when all the lambs for the Passover who would be, to, would be served for the meal are being slaughtered. John is very subtly but very loudly saying to us that Jesus is God's Passover lamb. And when the people demand that that Pilate crucify Jesus, Pilate asks them, shall I crucify your king? And they look at Pilate and they say to him, away, away. Unwittingly, but just as powerfully, as those who place their hands on the the head of the goat, confessing their sins over the goat and saying, away into the wilderness. Jesus would be crucified outside the city walls, sent into the far country of exile. And each week we gather to remember that the cross is a sacrifice that brings a new exodus as the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, sets us free by the power of the Holy Spirit. The cross is a day of atonement where our sins are laid bare and at the same time are cast out, where the meeting place of our hearts is purified and sanctified so that God can dwell within us. The cross is a sacrifice that removes our guilt, rectifies that which we have distorted because there is a cost to sin and makes peace with God. 1 John 2 verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God or at anything that we could do based on our own merit, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, friends. And each week we come to this table 
ironically, the predominant motif that we proclaim at this table is that Jesus was sacrificed for us. That he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world. And friends, that is not normal language that we use. And yet it is absolutely central to what Jesus is wanting to do. So in a moment, we're going to invite you to the table. I'm going to go ahead and invite our communion service forward. And I just want you to reflect on this. Because the cross, as we began, invites wonder, invites contemplation. I just simply want to invite you, where is, where is God maybe saying, hey, there's, there's participation in the ways of sin and brokenness here? Where is he revealing to you the ways that you have gone your own way or that you have missed the mark? Because, friends, here's what I know and here's the joy of what I get to proclaim to you today. That at the same moment where God reveals to you your sinfulness, he is at the same time offering you the invitation to the table, offering you the invitation to come home. So where is he saying, hey, you've gone your own way, but there is a better way that has been paid for by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth, and he reigns forevermore as the land that is at the center of the universe. You are invited to this table, not because of anything you've done, because God's already accomplished it all. It is finished in the words of Jesus on the cross. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. God, would your presence just be the predominant focus in this room? God, would we in, in whatever quiet, whatever subtle ways you show us yourself. God, whatever ways you speak to us. God, I know when I talk about sin, there can be instant resort to condemnation. The voice of the accuser will come and try to tell us that this is not for us. That what we have done or who we have become is too far gone. And yet, you went as the scapegoat, as the one carrying our sins beyond the bounds, beyond the city walls, God. And you came back by your resurrection and your power to declare to us there is no distance to which you have not gone. Thus, there is no distance that we can go that is beyond your saving love. So Jesus, by the power of your blood, by the beauty of your name, would you proclaim here today that there are children of the one true God and that you are reclaiming that which is your own by the ransom of your blood. God, would you communicate that to us today? God, we stand in awe before your cross. We come to your table tasting redemption, Lord Jesus. Would you meet us there? We pray all these things in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I can invite you to the table over the next few moments, and then there'll be a time for prayer.